May be seated. Ezra chapter 7, I put 7 and 8. I'll get to 8, but I won't finish 8, so I'm already making progress. You know, we're halfway through the book of of, uh, Ezra, and no mention of his name has come up yet. There's 25 references to him from from this point onward, half of them in the book of Nehemiah, though. We know the book of Ezra begins at the return of the Jewish exiles in 537 B.C. from Babylon. The last few chapters of the book of Ezra have been concerned with the events leading up to immediately following the completion of the second temple, which was in 516 B.C. And we're about to jump about 60 years to Ezra chapter 7. Verse 1 and 6 says, now, after these things, the temple has been completed. Pastor Brian talked about that, has been dedicated, the Passover celebrated, and the year is 458 B.C. It says, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, this Ezra, don't make a mistake, it's this Ezra, came up from Babylon. And he was, I love the word, he was a skilled scribe. And that word skilled means he was a ready scribe. He's not like some of us who graduate from college and then you have to get an internship and all these things. When Ezra finished, he was ready to participate. He said he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord, his God was upon him. That reminds me of Proverbs 16, 7, when it says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. So let's understand that Ezra, he wasn't only a great student, he was a great statesman, he was a great reformer, and of course, he was a great preacher. Like I said, we are halfway through Ezra, and there's no mention of him. There will be 25 references to him from the point, this point onward. Half of them is in the book of Nehemiah. The book of Ezra begins with the return of the Jewish exiles from Babylon in 537 B.C. The last few chapters of this book, we have been concerned with events leading up and immediately following the completion of this second temple, which was in 516 B.C., Verse 1 tells us, now, after these things, what things? Ezra 7.1, the year is 458 B.C., during the reign of the Persian king Artaxerxes. Suddenly, we meet Ezra, the man. In the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Zerariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, boy, who named these men? The son of Marioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Bucky, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron. I love it when it says the chief priest. And then the Holy Spirit wants us to make sure we know who he's talking about. He says, this Ezra. 
came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses. He was ready to do his job, which the Lord God of Israel had given. Reminds me of 2 Timothy 3.16, where the Holy Spirit says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I like when it says it's God-breathed. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instructions in righteousness. The man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. This was Ezra. Verse 6 tells us, the king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. You know, it's amazing that we'll say about in, in Nehemiah and Ezra, the Holy Spirit will tell us the good hand of the Lord was upon him. And these words are here for a purpose. When it says the good hand of the Lord, how much are we in a better covenant? We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And that the good hand of the Lord was upon Ezra. And he does all these things. Why? For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statues and ordinances in Israel. We know that not all the exiled Jews came back at the first return following that decree from King Cyrus or during the decades that followed when the temple was rebuilt. Daniel, for example, he was still there. Uh, some 80 years before the events recorded in Ezra 7, almost 60 years after the second temple dedication, Ezra and a group of people, about 4,000 priests, Levites, temple gatekeepers, singers, and servants, they returned to Jerusalem. I don't think uh, Ezra's family, they were observant Jews. It doesn't say much about them. This is 80 years after the initial return, when none of those mentioned in chapter 7 had been born. I'm sure some stayed, no doubt, because of the commitment in Babylon for their brothers and sisters there. They, too, needed ongoing instructions in the Old Testament that had evidently marked those initially lives. After all, among the exiles, we have to remember, were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And out of these exiled Jews came men such as Ezra and Nehemiah. So they were teaching the word there. Ezra chapter 7, 7, 8 relates how on April 8th, 458 BC, this company set out from Babylon. They arrived in Jerusalem the fourth month, four months later, August the 4th, having traveled and endured the Middle Eastern sun on a route that involved certain dangers. 8.22 tells us a little bit, the enemy on our way. And you better believe there was many enemies, but the God of Israel protected them. Ezra seemed at an early age to have a burden in his heart to return to Jerusalem. 
I'm sure some stayed, you know, because of the money and things like that. And maybe it was a commitment to minister there to the exiles. They needed the ongoing instructions also of the Old Testament that had evidently marked a lot of their lives. Ezra 7, verse 7 and 8 states how on April 8th, B.C., 458 B.C., this company set out from Babylon. This probably explains why some had not returned sooner. Ezra chapter 1, middle of that verse, it says, The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and also put it in writing, saying, verse 5, Then the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, with all whose spirit God had moved, that word again is stirred up, arose to go up and build the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem. It's amazing to me that the Lord stirs our heart to save us. I think of the prodigal son. I think of many people who's backslidden. And then the Lord is so gracious that he stirs up the heart to come back. And we know some stayed. We will give them benefit, a benefit of the doubt to minister to those who lived in exile. Nehemiah, some 20 years later, he probably heard tales from travelers, came to Persia, dominated Babylon with news that things were not going well in Jerusalem. Jewish law concerning marriage, we'll hear about that in Nehemiah, that was going astray. There may have been a temple in Jerusalem, but the Jews were in danger of repeating the very sins that the Lord had brought them into bondage with in exile. The first place, the sins of presumption, formality, and a neglect of the word of God. Anytime you begin to neglect the word of God, you're on slippery, a slippery floor because that word is what sustains us. That word is what holds us. And the enemy does not want you to be in the word, but that's our foundation. He's speaking almost a century earlier. Jeremiah had warned those who trusted in the fact that the temple were still standing. They thought as long as the temple were standing, they were in good graces with God. Jeremiah 7, 4 through 11 says, Do not trust in these lying words, saying, The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord are these. For if you thoroughly amend your ways, as are walking upright when you're saved that you have to do, and your doings, if you thoroughly execute judgment between a man and his neighbor, if you do not oppress the stranger the fatherless, and the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place or walk after other gods. And I love it when he says, to your hurt. He doesn't want us to be hurt. God doesn't. He loves us. He's a great heavenly father, and he looks out for us. Then he says, do all these things. Then I will cause you to dwell in this place, in the land that I gave to your fathers forever and ever. Behold, you trust in lying words that cannot profit. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, and walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered to do all these abominations. You've saved me to do all these abominations. 
We'll talk more about that Sunday. He says, has this house which is called by my name become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I even I have seen it, says the Lord. Things were not better in Ezra's days. The Jews in Jerusalem were neglecting, once again, the scriptures. How about you? Are we daily in the scriptures? It's okay to read a devotion here and a devotion there, but it's almost like eating secondhand food, I heard, when you're getting devotions, when you can dive in the word for yourself. A new generation whose grandparents and great-grandparents had built the second temple. Now they've, they've occupied the city. These fifth-century Jews were in need of a preacher, and God knew that, someone who would proclaim the word of God with personal application to the conscience. They were in need of relearning the gravity of sin, and this they could do only by being reacquainted with the word of God. God's law in all its particulars. That's what Ezra is coming for. They did not need some some smooth salve, someone who would just say and speak lying words to them and lull them to sleep in a false assurance. They needed someone who could put the fear of God into their souls and awaken them to the peril of presumptive religion. And for this urgent task, because he cares God has raised up the man Ezra. And since we are meeting him this evening for the first time, let's learn a little bit about him. I'm impressed with Ezra. He was a priest, an important one at that. The chapter begins in what may once seem like a laborious genealogy. It says, uh, Ezra, the son of Zeruiah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, takes us way back, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Merioth, the son of Zerahiah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buckai, the son of Abishua, the son of Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest, all the way back to Aaron. Remember, priests were not chosen on the whims of the ruling high priest. They were born into the family line that could trace their ancestry all the way back to Aaron, the first high priest. Ezra had a a legal right to be a priest, and Ezra was an important figure. And his genealogy is not complete, does not complete the important things in his path where he traces Ezra through the Zadok line all the way back to Aaron. Although Ezra was not the high priest, his genealogy is impressive, particularly in a culture in which genealogy meant so much. The list might cause us to yawn, and I yawned a few times going over it, but to Ezra's, Ezra's initial audience when he arrives there, It was like a symphony blowing. They had heard of this man, and he's coming to town. And I'm sure they're they're a little worried. Zechariah and Haggai, had they heard such a preacher before as Ezra, or Esdras, as he was also known, acclaimed authority for his work from King Artaxerxes himself, placing him on a par with the leaders of the initial return, 
Shezbazar, Zerubbabel, and Jeshua, who came with the permission of King Cyrus. Ezra, he's really, they call him a second Moses in this book. He's a lawgiver and teacher establishing the contours of one nation under God that Israel had forgotten. He was a scribe, Ezra 7, 6 tells us, and Nehemiah 8, 1 and 4. Scribes was originally used to describe the position of state secretary. And then it was, they were known as a royal private secretary. But by the time Ezra comes on the scene, a scribe was the one who dictated the word of God and interpreted the word of God. So he was a professional of the highest order. In addition to his political credentials, Ezra was skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. Artaxerxes, he needed someone in Jerusalem who understood the Jewish laws, who he could trust, and the complexity of the Jewish laws, and could maintain order and stability there in what always a potentially fractious community for a foreign overlord. It's interesting how the passage speaks of the law of Moses. He's not only referring to the five books, but he's referring to the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue also. The first five books of the Old Testament, Ezra was a man of a courageous faith. He had asked King Artaxerxes, and the king granted him all that he asked. Remember when Nehemiah was serving the king and he had a sad countenance on his face? And at that time, if, I guess you were supposed to smile or pretend you were smiling all the time around the king because if you were frowning off with your head or however they wanted to kill you. But Nehemiah, he asked them, why is your countenance fallen? And he began to tell, tell them, him about Jerusalem and how the walls and everything wasn't rebuilt. And right at that moment, we call it a flare prayer, Nehemiah prayed, and then he told the king what was going on. And the king, once again, had compassion. He was about to lead a group of people, Ezra was, on a four-month trip through the desert. Ezra was a model reformer, and it wasn't about his own personal convictions or his driving ambition to implement a certain mode of behavior in the city. It is the Lord expression, the hand of the Lord, his God, was upon him. The Hebrew text of Ezra 7.10 begins with an emphatic explanation of why God's hand was upon Ezra. We need to know that. If God uses Ezra, a man of the Old Testament, the way he did, for or because Ezra has set his heart to study the law of the Lord. God prospered the initiative because it was a good one. When we're focused on things of the Lord, when our mind is not on the world and the things of the world, but we're steady, focused on the Lord the way we should be, God can use a man, a woman, and boy and girl then. But not only until we get like that, He'll give us these things and that, those things. But if you really want to be used of the Lord, touch this world gently. God prospered the initiative because it was a good one. Ezra, like David, had a heart for God. 
His love was for God's word and God's ways, not his own. He did not go west to become rich, to have a better life. His ambition was was not for personal gain, financial improvement. He wanted to see the Lord's people born out and walking the way they should, for all the glory would go to God. Just the word he set his heart has intense meaning. It's rendered in the New King James devoted, which is a good word, but it doesn't capture the heart like when he set the heart. It involves the core of one's being. If it's in the mind, it can be taken away. But if it's in the heart, that's the seat of our being, and we can hold on to it. This was not an intellectual exercise in national reform, a political campaign to bring a better way of life to the citizens of Jerusalem. Ezra had a heart for God and a mind for the truth. He loved the scriptures. That's why I love this man so much. He loved to examine them in detail. He had spent years in the study of the scriptures and was now eager to teach them, had come to understand them. He was, a script, he was scripture knowledge of his content and obedience to its demands as the necessary mark of people of God. If they were ever to be the kind of people of God that God desired them to be. Ezra's reform came in the form of teaching and implementing scripture back to the Bible was his burden. But there was more to Ezra's, a desire to teach others God's word. His heart desire was both to do and to teach. That's what it should be, not to just get full of the word, brain knowledge, head knowledge, and know it, but are you doers of the word, as James says? He modeled the word of God. He must be a doer of the word. Paul urged the Ephesians, elders on the coast of Miletus, he said this, pray, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock. That's Acts 20, 28. So we cannot expect to be effective in ministry to others unless ourselves have first, we've submitted to the word of God. Be disciplined in the word of God. Discipline is a good word. And that's what Paul says we should be disciplined in the word of God. By this time, the religious life in Jerusalem, from the temple dedication, the time of Ezra's arrival, had taken an outward conformity. That's all they had. To the temple rituals and sacrifices, there was outward conformity and an external compliance, but it was only a public faith. We're good at having public faith, but I'm here to tell you, God sees us all the time. And it did not relate to people's private lives. The people were outwardly conforming, but inwardly they were living to please themselves. It's a pattern that Israel has passed through before and the church continues to pass through. If our religion is mere formality, it's nothing at all. Ezra came to call the people of God back to heart religion in which obedience to details is not seen as something legalistic or irksome. 
If my wife loves tulips, a certain shade, say pink tulips, not roses or daisies or lilies, but tulips, love will ensure that it is pink tulips she gets. That isn't seen as being legalistic, but as an expression of depths of one's love, wanting to ensure that obedience to detail is manifested. Ezra loved God and therefore wanted to obey. Jesus said, if you love me, you, some translation says you'll keep my commandments. Some say you'll obey me. Ezra wanted to obey him in every detail. Now, no doubt, the lukewarmness called him a legalist who hadn't discovered freedom that exists in God's love. Such critics, they still exist today. Of course, those that brush off their own ability to be too easily satisfied with a little obedience. Their criticism merely reflects their own idolatrous hearts. They have made God to be tolerant. God is not tolerant. A reflection of our Western liberal democracy. We need to pursue God with Ezraelite's heart. I had to give you a little detour because I'm impressed with this man. He's a special guy. Verse 11 says, Artaxerxes, king of kings. They call Artaxerxes the long-armed. He was the fifth monarch of the Persian hegemony of the so-called Achaemenid dynasty. Successive Persian kings who followed Cyrus II, the great and the initial phase of the Jews' return from Babylon. There appeared to have been few or social or commercial barriers between Jews and Babylonians. They got along fine. That's why the Jews became so wealthy in Babylon. But given this background, it may not be as surprising that a Persian ruler would commission a devout Jew to administer the law, Jewish biblical law at that, in Jerusalem. Ezra came to Jerusalem bearing a letter from the king. It says in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave to Ezra, the priest, the scribe, a man learned in matters of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes for Israel. Ezra was the king's emissary. He was his ambassador. Verse 12 tells us, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of the God of heaven, perfect peace, and so forth. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire, so these seven men also go with them, concerning Judah and Jerusalem, with regard to the law of your God, which is in your hand, and whereas you are to carry the silver and the gold, so that's why they were catching trouble getting to Jerusalem, which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel, whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. At this time, they thought you had gods in the mountains, gods in the valleys, gods in the water, but they know nothing about Yahweh. He runs the universe. And it seems that Ezra had walked the walk in Babylon in the court because the king and his counselors, 
made this offering to the God of Israel. Ezra was given the authority to appoint magistrates and judges. They got together all of this material. Ezra was given the king's decree. Then preparation was made for them to leave. The decree reveals a tremendous reverence for God. And notice how it concludes. Verse 16, and whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in all the province of Babylon, along with the free will offering, he even knows why some of these things are necessary. Of the people and the priests are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now, therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs with their grain offerings. They'll be doing sacrifices and their drink offerings and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and the gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given to you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed, God has moved on this man's heart. For the house of your God, which you may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. That'd be like pay for it from uh, Joe Biden's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes, the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require you, he has all of this authority, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cords of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. I'm glad of that. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it be diligent, diligent be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there... Now, this is why this tells you why Artaxerxes are really doing these things. He hadn't converted yet. Or if, I don't know if he ever did. But he says, for why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? So he knows Yahweh is a bad God, all-powerful. He's a good God. But... He wants to make all of his bases, make sure they're safe. Also, we inform you that it, it shall not be lawful to impose tax. We like this, tribute or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, Nethanim, servants of this house of God, and you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as knows the law of your God and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, <laughs> let judgment be executed speedily on him, whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Now, this law, of course, was in reference to, Jew to the Jews after they had arrived in the land. In other words, if they return their land, they must to their land, they must mean business as far as their relationship to God is concerned. And notice the thanksgiving Ezra gives. Not only was the temple to be rebuilt, 
It was also to be beautified. So they just wasn't satisfied with a built temple. They wanted it to look good. God's house ought to look good. It should look good to the pleasure of the people who come. And we do a good job at that. And we need to continue to do a good job at that. Verse 27, blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. That's where it comes from. To beautify the house of the Lord, which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselor. So Ezra knows where all of this good mercies and graces, gracious come from. And before all the king's mighty princes, so I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And I gathered uh, leading men of Israel to go up with me. The task before Ezra, it was a difficult one. He was divinely strengthened to perform what he had to do. He says, I took courage for the hand of the Lord my God was upon me. And that reminds me, whatever the task the Lord has given us to do, if we keep him up front, I'm thinking about the VBS or anything we do, if we keep him in the center and depend on him, if he's given us something to do, he's going to make it a great success, whatever the task is. That's a promise to us. God's enablements are always there if we're in his will. Ezra 8, these are the heads of their father's houses. And this is the genealogy of those who went up from me from Babylon in the reign of Artaxerxes, of the sons of Phinehas, Gershom of the sons of Ithamar, Daniel of the sons of David, Hattush, of the sons of Zechariah, of the sons of Peros, Zechariah, and registered with him 150 males, of the sons of Pathai, Moab, Elohoni, the sons of Zerahiah, and with them 200 males, five of the sons of Shechaniah, Ben-Jehaziel, and with him 300 males of the sons of Aden, Ebed, the son of Jonathan, and with him 50 males, of the sons of Elam, Jesusiah, the sons of Ataliah, and with them 70 males, eight of the sons of Shephthiah, Zebediah, the sons of Michael, and with them 80 males, not, uh, of the sons of Joab, Obadiah, the son of Jehel, and with them 218 males, of the sons of Shelomith, Ben-Josephiah, and with him 160 males, of the sons of Bebai, Zechariah, the son of Bebai, and with him 28 males of the son of Asgad, Johanan, the son of Hakaton, and with him 110 males of the last sons of Ananikam, whose names are these, Eliphet, Jael, and Shemaiah, and with them 60 males, also of the sons of Migvah, Utai, and Zabud, and with them 70 males. Now, it makes good sense in that society, because that's what we're about to talk about, in which the head of the family, which is the man, bore such profound importance from Ezra. Addressing him specifically, 
in the firm belief that such a person was in a position to influence many others in his family to join him. It's not like that in the church today. We should get back to that. Second, the bonds of the family lines are strong, but in a culture such as our own in which the breakdown of marriage and family has been its chief characteristics for the past half century, contributing to what David Wells has called the loss of our virtue. We may find such a passage as this patriarchal and antiquated, as Derek Kinder points out in a fascinating footnote in his commentary, The Passage Now. Appears, he says, it appears counterintuitive and certainly countercultural to the modern church, to the modern church, let alone to modern secular society. It is at least food for thought that church strategy often appears to reverse this order. I've been to enough churches. It does that, and I think we're correcting it, but we need to make sure we correct it. Concentrating on children, the tail end of the family, to neglect the head of the family. I like what uh, Kenner's statement, he says, the phenomenon that now dominates all our churches, youth ministry. You got to have a youth ministry. You got to have a very good youth ministry if you want other people to come. But I success, that's not the way the Bible lines up things. In an interview with Mark Dever on the marks of a healthy church, he was asked the question about the relationship of youth ministry as typically practiced in churches in the United States and church health, to which he gave this response. The most important teaching, I've heard Jonathan say it, Brian say it, we know it, but we have to do it. The most important teaching the youth receive is from home if they are from a Christian home and from the pulpit. When a society departs from biblical virtue, one of the signs it manifests is a disdain, is a disdain for the older generation. And believe me, I feel it every day. Whether parents or grandparents in the home or ageism in the workplace, in every case but one, these groups were joining pioneers with their fathers and their mothers and their grandmothers, and they're going back, and they're sending them, getting ready to go to Israel, to Jerusalem, from their own family line who had made the journey to Jerusalem 80 years before, except for Joab, Ezra 8, 9. All these family names are found in earlier lists in chapter 2. Now, we can say that one imagines some communication had been made between these families all the time they'd been there and they had runners going back and forth. I don't know. But what I do know is that the older generation that was left that had built these kids up and their sons and daughters up, it was because of that older generation applying the word Make sure your kids read the word. 
make sure before they do anything else, they've read the word. I kind of think with Anthony and Erica, when they were in high school, I kind of fell off. Well, they, they can read it now if they want to. But I think that's some, I made a mistake there. They need to be constantly in the word to defeat this world with the Holy Spirit in us. And, and, a, a, and one way you know that the society is dying one way, it's a thousand ways I could tell you, is when they start treating the older generation as if you have no rate. Why are you here? You don't even need to be here. You're 60, you're 50, you're 70. And they disrespect them. And this is what we don't want to let fall by the way. So I, I'm glad we're going to countryside. We've been over there. But it's almost hit my spirit. And I don't know how to do it. I don't know how to do it. We need to go talk to families. That's what we should do when the, they come pick up their kids. Because it's not the family. It's not the little kids that's going to build this church up. It's going to be parents that are converted and love the Lord, and then they will get their kids. Ezra, by the Holy Spirit, has just shown it when he went back and got these people. He was looking for the elderly, the ones who, who, who had put the word into this, these families, these kids. And that's what we never need to let fall by. Like I said, I don't know the exact way to do it, but I know it needs to be done. Any time a family comes to a church just about, the first thing they look for and ask for is the youth group. We just need something to entertain our kids. That's all. I don't want Restore to be like that. Because I surmise to you, the principle of this, the order of this, is the man and the woman, the mom and the dad. They direct the kids. Or when they get saved, they will direct the kids. We go for what we know. We do what we do. But that's what we should be praying for. When we go to countryside, I know we always try to talk to the parents, if there are parents there. But that's what we need to be praying for because that's how they brought these people to Jerusalem. They were looking for people, older people, who could teach the word of God to, to the children. And that's very important. That's very important. It's in the word of God. Let's pray. Father, every jot and tittle of your word is profitable. You gave that order. Uh, Ezra is going to wait three days, four days at the Ahava River or spring from that. And he's going to pray to you and seek your face that you would lead them and guide them and that he's chosen the right people that they can begin to teach the word again because already in Jerusalem, they have the temple built, but it's all formality. The temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We, as the Holy Spirit said, through Paul, are the temple of the Lord. And if we want families to be here, like I said, I don't know how, 
but I got two smart men, Jonathan and Brian, and Rick and all the elders, I know we need to study that and we need to do, do something to do that because once you get the parents, they're going to direct the kids. That's the way it is here. That's the way it is in your word, Father. Lord, would you please come and minister to those that are hurting? You're the God who saves. You're the God who continues to save. You're the God who will leave the 99 and go after the one. You're that committed to your children, and I thank you for that, Lord. Bless your word and bless your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.